Today, we're going to talk about transitions in level design. Welcome to the 44th episode of the Game Dev Field Guide. I am your host, Zaccavelli. You can find me on Twitter at underscore Zaccavelli underscore, and for the occasional Game Dev stream on twitch.tv slash Zaccavelli underscore. We also have an open community Discord. It's a place where anyone from beginner to expert can join to join a community of game devs and kind of collaborate with others, learn from others and really just enjoy the hobby and craft together. So yeah, go check that out. There's an open invite link in the show notes. As you may have already noticed, I am a little sick at the moment, so I apologize for my uh, gravelly voice quality, but this episode has an important and timely announcement, so I can't delay it. I'm going to do it today, and that big announcement is that my first commercial game ever now has a store Steam page. The game is called Bounce Shot, and it's a FPS puzzle platformer where all shots must be bounced into their target. It's sort of in a similar vein to Portal and Antichamber, if you've ever played those games. And yeah, its Steam page is live if you just go onto Steam and type in Bounce Shot on the search bar. You'll find it, and you'll be able to wishlist it and sign up for the beta. It would really mean the world to me if you would go and wishlist it as it helps with the Steam algorithm when you go to release your game. And if you sign up for the beta, it should be starting within the month, and if you sign up now, I can guarantee that you will get into the beta. So yeah, if you have the time, and if you've ever gotten anything out of the show... It would mean a lot to me if you could go onto Steam and wishlist Bounce Shot and sign up for the beta. It will be a really fun time. We have a little dedicated Discord and we'll be doing challenges and I'll be giving away Bounce Shot merch and it'll be fun. So yeah, with the intro out of the way, let's move on to the Game Dev Challenge. The Game Dev Challenge is the part of the show where I provide a prompt to the audience for them to do a short little maybe 15 to 30 minute exercise that kind of helps reinforce the show's topic. If you'll remember, last episode was about designing approachable games and tutorials, and specifically we talked about the idea of a ghost tutorial. And so for the Game Dev Challenge, I asked everyone to identify a good example of a ghost tutorial from a game that they have played or maybe one of their own projects. And there was a lot of good submissions for this one, but as we know, there can only be one winner, or that's not even always true. Sometimes there's more than one winner. But this week, there is only one winner, and that person is J.S. J.S. provided a classic example of a ghost tutorial, starting with Super Mario Bros. Level 1-1. Jay says... This was the first game that immediately came to mind when you described what a ghost tutorial is. The first level of this game introduces the core mechanics, and if you think about it really, the genre as a whole, in really intelligent ways. Jay then breaks down in sort of a bullet point format 
You start on an empty screen with no enemies or obstacles, so you need to figure out how to use the D-pad to move Mario. Next, you encounter the game's first enemy, a single Goomba in a fairly open space. This screen ensures that the player has learned how to either stomp on enemies to defeat them, or at least jump over them to avoid them. This screen also gives your first set of question blocks, including a mushroom. Next, you need to jump over a series of increasingly taller pipes. The last two of them will require you to master sprinting to jump higher. After this, you get your first pit to jump over. The pipes have taught you how to get some extra air on your jumping by sprinting. And to guide the player a little bit more, there's a hidden power-up positioned such that if you jump too early on the sprint jump, it'll knock you back down to the ground, preventing you from hurling yourself down the pit. The level then continues to ramp up mastery of mechanics with other steps such as short stairs with ground in between them followed by the same structure with the pit. This forces the player to practice getting momentum for a jump on a short single block runway. I think Jay did an excellent job of breaking down why Super Mario's, or I'm sorry, Super Mario Brothers level 1-1 is a great example of a ghost tutorial. And he's right, let's just take like the first two screens for instance. On the first screen, there's nothing that says like push this button to make Mario run. It doesn't tell you anything. I suppose with the NES you only have so many inputs you can try. So it kind of just gives you a safe space, uh, just single open screen to figure out how to move Mario. And most people will probably go straight away to the D-pad. So... They've already kind of taught themselves, which we talked about. Ghost tutorials work really well because it allows people to learn on their own, kind of in their own way. And if they figure it out for themselves, it's cemented much more than if you just tell them. So yeah, in the first game, or the first screen, they learn how to move Mario. On the next screen, they have one enemy that they either need to avoid or jump on, and a question block that gives them a mushroom. And right there, within the first two screens, you've pretty much learned the majority of mechanics. So yeah, I think that's a super cool and super good example of a ghost tutorial. So congrats to JS for winning the episode 43 Game Dev Challenge. For episode 44, which would be this episode, I want you to sketch a map design for a competitive FPS map, an open world world map, or a single-player sort of stealth or even platforming level. The idea is really you can sketch any kind of level map you want to, but I want to see some effort in trying to incorporate the core things we're going to learn in today's episode about transitions and paths and all sorts of interesting stuff we're going to learn today. But yeah, a quick simple sketch with like really simple drawing will work. All you got to do is submit your drawing or sketch, maybe even add a little bit of text. And you can do that on the community discord under the Game Dev Challenge channel. If you win, um, and you win by getting the most votes, I'll read your post off on the next show. I'll describe your drawing, and you'll go up on the community leaderboard uh, for Game Dev Challenge wins. So with the Game Dev Challenge done, let's move on over to the body of the episode. Today's episode is about transitions and level design. And by transitions, I really just mean how to get from place to place. It can be taken in a few directions. It can be like 
how to get from one set piece like a boss or an arena to the next. It can be how to just get across a room, how you as a game designer plan for the player to get across a specific area. But what's important and what we want to think about today is how we connect spaces together and where we place the spaces at. What I want you to keep in mind and what I think is key to all of this is the idea of flow. You want the transitions to help your game flow. Your game can't be all arenas, all points of interest, all boss encounters. There has to be some spaces in between. Even a game that is all boss encounters, like Shadow of the Colossus, has spaces in between. The spaces in Shadow of a Colossus are beautiful vistas that really help set the tone. The transition between each boss encounter are meaningful and make the game flow nicely. So yeah, what we're going to focus on is tips that help make the flow of your game better and make the transitions meaningful. So I think the first thing that helps with flow in a level, uh, particularly in games that have a somewhat open world, is pass. Now in a linear game like maybe a corridor shooter, pass might not be as important at the macro scale, but I'd still argue that the path within the corridors or arenas is important to think about with regards to cover, verticality, shooting lanes, um, but we'll talk that about that in kind of the last part of the episode. What I want to talk about in this moment is pass from place to place in the game world. In an open world game, for instance, this might be the path between two towns or points of interest. I like to think about pass in a few ways, the main one being primary versus secondary pass. You don't usually want one singular main path from place to place, unless of course you want the player to be extremely focused or closed off in one direction. Usually you want to give your player agency and you do that by giving them multiple paths to the objective. But making a bunch of equal paths to the same place can make things boring and kind of confusing. So you should divide your paths into primary and secondary paths. Think of primary paths like highways. Quick, efficient, well-guided, not super interesting. Secondary paths are like back roads or driving through the city. Slower, but lots of room for intrigue, an element of exploration, and mystery. One of my favorite techniques is having secondary paths intersect main paths at regular intervals. That way the player is always moving in somewhat the right direction, but you're mixing it up enough so that it's not just a boring straight shot. Here's a really simple example. Let's say we have a straight line path from one town to another. Now we might want to overlap a sine wave or an S-like pattern over the straight line. If we do this, we now have interesting pockets all along the main path. And you can fill those pockets with little mini-events, sub-encounters, easter eggs, lore elements, etc. All sorts of things to make these little pockets interesting and vary up the sort of experiences you get along the main path. This example specifically, I think, is a little, maybe a little too formulaic. It's a little too planned and looks man-made if it's just a perfect straight line with an S pattern over it. Your actual primary path probably shouldn't be just a straight line, and your secondary path shouldn't be evenly spaced and always the same pattern, but I hope you understand the difference now between a primary and secondary path. 
when it comes to secondary paths, you might also end up with dead ends. I like to limit the amount of dead ends that I have. It doesn't mean you have to have zero, but you don't want a bunch of them. Too many dead ends can make the player feel like they aren't making progress and they're getting lost often. Plus, when the player reaches a dead end, they have to backtrack, and I think I talked about backtracking on the last level design episode, but in general, backtracking is bad. This is where recursive or circular paths come into play. The best example I can think of this is in Skyrim. In Skyrim, a lot of dungeons have one-way circular paths. For pacing reasons, you want the dungeon to start simply, maybe have a few puzzles and enemy encounters in the middle, and end with a boss. Now you could design a circular path where the boss is somewhat in the middle. That way they can go all the way through the dungeon and they're brought back to the beginning of the dungeon by the end of the path, but you can't put the end boss at the beginning of the circle because that's also where you enter the circle. So yeah, you could put the boss somewhere in the middle of the circle, but then the pacing would be weird. It'd be weird to like fight a big boss and then go back through like easier enemies. You don't want to have a straight line because once you reach the boss, then you'd have to walk backwards through the whole dungeon uh, after beating it. So what Skyrim does is actually pretty clever. The last bit of the circle is a one-way path that goes back to the entrance. I suppose you could think of the main path as more of like a horseshoe shape, with the entrance at one point of the horseshoe and the boss at the other. And then think of a one-way straight line that connects the boss room to the entrance. This is really clever because you get the sort of pacing of a straight line and the benefits of a circular design because you can go straight from the boss room back to the entrance and you don't have to backtrack. And it keeps the flow of the game really nice. It allows you to go through dungeons and get the shout words. It's been a long time since I played Skyrim, I can't remember what they're called, but it keeps you engaged and moving along with the content. And it's usually done in some kind of really clever way, like a tunnel you didn't see above the entrance, or some kind of hidden gate. But yeah, my, my point is that it keeps the flow going. You don't have to slog and backtrack all the way back through a long dungeon. You can just immediately go back to the start and you're ready to go to the next. And it keeps the player wanting to engage with the content. And speaking of engaging with the content, another thing we want to do when thinking about transitions and the overall flow of our level design is we want to help the player build a mental map. A mental map is the idea that while the player is playing the game, they get an understanding of where they are in the world and the position of everything else relative to that point. Mental maps are extremely powerful and an important thing to help your player build. You probably have a favorite game where you know the world map or a specific multiplayer map like the back of your hand. Once a player's mental map is strong, flow in the game comes natural to them. Kind of like how when you know the way to work or to school so well that you don't really even have to think about it, you kind of just wind up there. It's almost a flow state in itself. You just get in the car and in however long you're at work. That's the kind of flow that we want to build into our game and the kind of mental map um, muscle memory that we want our players to have. So how can we help our player build a mental map? Well, let's start with landmarks and focal points. 
landmarks are usually important things that you can see from far away that give you a sense for where you are. Big castles, iconic mountains, shipwrecks, stuff like that. Focal points are kind of a subgenre of this. I would say focal points are more of a local uh, sort of visual interest tool rather than a map-wide navigational tool. But if your focal point is so interesting that it's burned into the player's mind, it will no doubt become part of their mental map. If you think about that mental map that you have for your favorite game, or just a game you've played a lot, um, it will no doubt be made up of focal points and landmarks. So when helping our players build their mental map, we want to try and have memorable focal points and landmarks in our level and world design. You can help build the mental map even more with narrative and visual techniques. One of the best examples I can think of is from Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire. There's a giant volcanic mountain in Ruby and Sapphire's region Hoenn, uh, but being in a 2D top-down game, it's kind of hard to convey that. So in order to sell this landmark, Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire and Emerald use visual and narrative tricks to make this area memorable. Whether it be ash falling from the sky, a little cutscene that plays when you take the lift up the mountain, or towns at the base of the volcano with hot springs, all of this works together to make the volcano be a landmark, despite not existing in a 3D world. It's a very memorable location for me, and it's way easier to mentally navigate that part of the game, like just in my head, than the large ocean routes that kind of lack landmarks. One weird thing about mental maps and game worlds is that the more open your world game is, the harder it will be to build a mental map, but it'll also be more important to build a mental map. This means that open world games, landmarks, and focal points are even more important. You might also want to employ a technique called breadcrumbing in an open world or semi-open world game. Breadcrumbing is a technique where you lead the player in the right directions with sort of subtle hints. Or maybe you just signify what your primary paths through the world are with these breadcrumbs. These subtle rewards, hints, or feedback um, can be lots of things, but a good example, I think, is have you ever gotten lost in a game and wondered if you were going the right way, and then you ran into a group of new enemies and said to yourself, well, this has to be the right way? In most cases, I think that's deliberate from the game and level designers. New enemies are a breadcrumb that is ever so slightly pulling you into the right direction. This can be as subtle or not subtle as you want. Maybe in an open world game you just have a straight up road that represents your primary pass. But either way, um, introducing the primary pass through breadcrumbs is a good way to help your player get their mental map going and kind of help them get the right primary pass. Another thing that I wanted to mention that's good for mental maps um, is a literal in-game map. This is simply because a player can only remember so much. They might remember specific areas really well, and if they played the game long enough they might remember the whole world, but it can be useful to have a world map with detailed information and how to connect the areas. Make sure in your in-game map to match the landmarks and focal points. Make sure you draw them right on the map. This makes it a lot easier for your player to contextualize their mental map and compare it to 
the landmarks in the world, as well as the game's map. Another technique for reducing the overall memorization or mental overhead of the mental map, or even getting a player to move in a certain direction, is gates and rabbit holes. Gates might take the form of literal gates, or they can be abstract, like an unpassable river. These can be really helpful when used sparingly. This is because you can show players where they have to go without giving them the immediate and non-challenge of just walking straight to it. It kind of puts into perspective where they need to go, and maybe even points them in a roundabout way to get there, since the straight path is blocked off. For example, it's easier to say, go to that town you can see across the river. The player will know, okay, well I guess I have to search for a bridge uh, up or downstream. But if you just say, there is a town on the other side of the river somewhere, but they can't see it, then the player still might know they have to cross a bridge to get over there. But once they get across that bridge, you're not going to know which way to go. Which, if they've already seen the town, if it's visible, then they know, okay, well, I went upstream to get to this bridge, so now i got to go downstream to get back to the town. It's just a really subtle way to provide good flow. If you just have them cross the bridge and then they have no idea what direction to go next, they just know they're looking for a town, it can really break up the flow and lead the player to feeling lost. Rabbit holes are kind of like extreme gates. Rabbit holes are something where there's no going back, at least temporarily, and you kind of lose your point of reference. This would be like falling down a mine shaft or being teleported to a different dimension. Stuff like that where you really can't tell where you are on your mental map. This can be a really good strategy to make your player feel uneasy if that's your desired effect. But it also somewhat alleviates the mental map overhead because without a reference point, there is no mental map. It's 100% new exploration. I would caution you to maybe not use a lot of rabbit holes, but if you're going for that sort of uneasy or new exploration feel, I think rabbit holes are a really cool and unique level design transition. The last thing I want to talk about today in transitions is cover design. Cover in a shooter is deeply rooted in good transitions and flow. In a shooting game, where the cover is is a huge influence on the general flow of the level. This is simply because cover is pretty much a place you are required to move to. So I just wanted to go over a few tips and what I've learned about designing cover. And actually a lot of these tips I've learned from someone else. That person is Tommy Norberg. You can find him on Twitter at the Norberg. That's actually at the underscore Norberg. But Tommy makes great level design infographics. And I'm not sure if he's still doing them. I think he's actually compiling them all into a book. But yeah, he's a really great follow on Twitter if you're into this sort of level design stuff and someone who I've learned a lot from. But anyways, back to cover design. Um, one of the worst things that you can do, and I think it's a natural thing to everyone, is that they take a room that needs cover, and they divide the room in half and mirror the cover on opposite ends. This makes the game feel really shallow, and that's because all of the angles are mirrored. It doesn't really offer the player a choice or a strategy. In multiplayer games, mirrored cover just results in a no-man's-land stalemate, 
and in a single player game it just makes the enemies feel boring and generic. Ideally what you want to do is make cover islands that are asymmetric but balanced. All that means is that the cover islands shouldn't be mirrored or placed on a grid, but they should still be fair. When picking where your cover islands go, you should consider angles and firing lanes, and try to design the room or map so that there's good flow between each firing position and angle. In multiplayer games, map knowledge and being able to predict the enemy's movements is often a key skill, and it's easier to develop this skill when there's a natural flow to the map. And you get that natural flow by providing cover islands and firing positions in a natural way. That's not to say you should overdo it with the islands. A good use of negative space can also be really effective. And all of this is pretty much the same for single player games. Stealth games, for instance, rely on cover that flows to the objectives. You don't want to randomly or sporadically place cover islands. You want a deliberate flowable path that blends into the game world that uses a good amount of negative space so that there's risk. And better yet, you could even offer multiple paths giving the player agency and freedom. The last thing I want to talk about when it comes to cover and just kind of overall map design is don't forget about verticality. Vertical cover and gameplay like ramps, balconies, towers, and rooftops can make a space feel bigger than it is and offer a different path, giving the player more agency and freedom that we were talking about. Lastly, vertical positions can make for really interesting fire positions, lanes, and angles, and kind of increases the skill ceiling and depth of the map. Let's go over a quick summary of today's key points. Um, today's episode was about transitions and level design, and really that just means how we can design good flow between points of interest in our levels. Having paths defined in your design is the first step to good flow. Remember, there can be primary and secondary paths. Primary is like highways, and secondary is like back roads. Try to limit the amount of dead ends in your paths. And remember that circular and recursive paths can be used to get the player back to the point of convenience without sacrificing pacing by having them backtrack. Remember that it's important to help our players build a mental map. We can do that by providing landmarks and memorable focal points. A strong mental map helps the game flow immensely. You can use narrative and presentation techniques to help make landmarks and focal points more memorable. You can help guide players along the right path with gates and breadcrumbs. Breadcrumbs are things like new enemies, power-ups, etc. Gates are one-way blocks that force a player to move around or pass them, but give them a good sense of where to go. Rabbit holes are kind of an extreme way to force a player where they need to go, but when used in the right circumstance, that can be a great way to invoke certain feelings. Lastly, cover design is a key part of transitioning through a level or the flow of a map. In a shooter, cover should come in the form of asymmetrical placed cover islands that are fair. Do not just mirror the cover across a room. It leads to stalemates and boring gameplay. Lastly, don't forget about the importance of verticality when it comes to fire, firing positions, and the flow of your level. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, please reach out to me on Twitter at underscore Zaccavilli underscore or come join our community Discord. 
There's an open invite link in the show notes. Don't forget to go wishlist my game Bounce Shot on Steam and sign up for the beta. With that, I think I'm going to sign off. I have been Zeccavelli. Backtracking should be made illegal, and I'll see you guys next time.